This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. When doubt is your product, business communication can look a lot like a football game. There is the fake, <laughs> the blitz, the diversion, the screen, and the fix. These are some of the disinformation strategies used by industries when scientific evidence begins to show that their product causes harm. They know the science, they accept the science internally, they use it to make business decisions, but the public positions they take are completely 180 degrees away from what they're doing. From smoking tobacco, to burning fossil fuels, to bone-crushing football tackles. These are things we know intuitively can't be good for you, right? And so they're trying to make this case that, that somehow like what is right in front of us might not actually be true. Concussions, cigarettes, and climate. Narratives of deceit. Up next on Climate One. What's the connection between football, tobacco, and fossil fuels? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. In the 1950s, tobacco company researchers realized the connection between smoking and cancer. To protect their jobs and profits, executives created a sophisticated campaign to cloud the emerging medical science. One tobacco executive captured the essence of that campaign when he observed, doubt is our product. In the 1990s, oil companies picked up the tobacco playbook to sow doubt and confusion about the simple fact that burning fossil fuels releases heat-trapping gases that are destabilizing the Earth's operating system. Lately, the NFL has called some of the same plays, as evidence mounts that repeated collisions in football and other contact sports turn brains into jello. Today's guests all have direct knowledge of these narratives of manufactured doubt. Adrian Alvord is Western States Director at the Union of Concerned Scientists, a nonprofit group founded at MIT that defends the integrity of science. UCS recently published the Disinformation Playbook, showing how companies deceive citizens and harm public health and safety. Steve Fenneru is co-author of League of Denial, the NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. He received the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting for the Washington Post from Iraq, and currently is a writer for ESPN, where he's broken many stories on the concussion crisis in football. And Stan Glantz is a professor at the UC San Francisco Medical School. He's an international expert on tobacco control, and published documents from the tobacco company Brown & Williamson to prove that companies knew 60 years ago that nicotine was addictive and smoking causes cancer. His many books include The Cigarette Papers and The Tobacco Wars. Here's our conversation about concussions, cigarettes, and climate, narratives of deceit. Stan Glanz, let's begin with you. Uh, the tobacco wars were kind of fought in the 90s, but they've been in the newspapers again, for those of us who get print newspapers and perhaps online. There are ads running in national publications now about tobacco and health impacts. Why are those ads being run now, years after the litigation? Since the 1950s, the tobacco companies engaged in a systematic and industry-wide campaign to distort the science, to keep the public confused, and basically defraud the public in, in, in order to keep them smoking. And during the Clinton administration, the Department of Justice initiated a lawsuit under the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, the RICO law, which is designed uh, to prosecute organized crime. And the government successfully claimed that the tobacco companies had created an illegal enterprise where they were coordinating their efforts to perpetrate this fraud. Uh, the, the case went on for many years. In 2006, the government essentially won the case, and federal uh, Judge Gladys Kessler uh, ordered them to stop saying nicotine wasn't addictive, to stop denying the evidence linking tobacco and cancer. Uh, she ordered them to continue producing their internal documents, which we put on the web at the internet, uh, at UCSF for everybody to look at. And she also um, uh, said they had to issue what she called corrective statements. They had to go to the public through the mass media, which, you know, back in 2006 was radio, television, and newspapers, and admit 
that they had misled the public, that they had designed cigarettes in a way to manufacture addiction, that secondhand smoke was dangerous. And now, 11 years ago, after 11 years of continuing litigation, where the companies were trying to avoid being required to make these statements, we finally got them. And they're going to be running, I believe, for a year. Adrian Elvord, tell us where, where the uh, tobacco story connects to, the, to the, the climate story and then the fossil fuel story. Well, the, as, as uh, Dr. Glantz was saying, uh, the tobacco industry really pioneered the techniques that are used in the disinformation playbook to deceive the public about the science uh, that their products are causing harm. And so when it was becoming clear in the 1970s and 1980s in particular that fossil fuel combustion was leading to the greenhouse effect which caused global warming, uh, the fossil fuel industry organized itself. They understood that the science was settled about this phenomenon, but they also understood that it was complicated and that they could forestall action, primarily government regulation and possibly, as with cigarettes, liability, if they confused the public and policymakers about the causes. And so they took uh, a big leaf out of the tobacco playbook uh, in that they use the very same, te same techniques which involve uh, funding of false science, hiring scientists to produce uh, information and research that, and not disclose that it's being funded by the fossil fuel industry, um, contributing money to prestigious institutions and hiding behind the names of those institutions when actually the, the research that's being produced is diverting attention from what's causing harm. Of course, they're doing a lot of lobbying. Um, and they're sending a lot of signals to the public, which are very, very confusing, about whether or not the science is really settled, whether or not the models are accurate, whether there might not be some advantages to global warming. Maybe we can farm in different parts of the country where we can't now. Things like this, things that really um, make the public feel like, well, we know there's something going on, but we're not really sure if it's good or bad, and we're not sure what the best thing is to do about it. And that's still going on today. And it's a lot of the same people, by the way, that the tobacco companies used. In fact, there's one uh, lawyer, Arthur Stevens, was a legal counsel for Lorillard Tobacco, and he was brought into the football situation by Preston Tisch, uh, owner of the New York Giants. Uh, and so there is some, yeah, that's one of the connections between football and tobacco. Steve Feiner, um, in many ways, this the, uh, football story goes way back, but it, one of the real central characters that you uh, mentioned in your book in the, in the excellent Frontline documentary is, is Mike Webster. So uh, for those of us who are not familiar or want to refresh, tell us Mike Webster, the story, and, and what's so important and compelling about him and the concussion. Well, he was, Webster was essentially patient zero in the NFL's concussion crisis. He was a, uh, a center for the Pittsburgh Steelers for 17 years. And, um, you know, he was known as a, a, as a player who was uh, intelligent and savvy. He was sort of the, the second captain on the, of, the, of the Pittsburgh Steelers offense, which was quarterbacked by, by Terry Bradshaw. He very much had his life together. But uh, toward the end of his career, his family started noticing significant changes. And he just wasn't taking care of his finances. He was incredibly forgetful. He had um, incredible mood swings and would become violent with his family. And then soon enough, he was completely estranged from his family and homeless and basically living out of his truck. Uh, some of the more extreme behavior that he went through um, was he, you know, he had insomnia. And so he would have his, his son ta use a taser to, to put him to sleep at, at times. And then finally, uh, he died at the age of 50, and he was taken to the Allegheny County Medical Examiner's Office, where a young pathologist named Bennett Amalu just happened to be working that day. And he was incredibly curious, and he was not a football fan, but he knew a little bit about Webster's case history, and he decided during the autopsy to cut open his skull and preserve his brain and study it. And what he found was the very first case of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a, a brain disease that had previously been associated only with boxers in Webster. And so it was the first case in which uh, an NFL player had been diagnosed with, with CTE or brain damage related to, to football.
Since then, there's been many others who've uh, committed suicide and had lots of similar problems. We'll get into some of those later. Uh, Chris Borland was a linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers who abruptly walked away from the NFL. Here is uh, in a video created by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Let's listen to Chris Borland. My name is Chris Borland. I walked away from pro football and a $2.9 million contract with the San Francisco 49ers because I didn't want to develop CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is caused by repeated brain injury. Researchers at Boston University studied the brains of 111 deceased NFL players. They found CTE in 110. CTE is a brain disease that causes depression, aggression, dementia, and in some cases, suicide. Yet for many years, the NFL denied the link. Unfortunately, the NFL isn't the only powerful player that's sidelining science. Lobbyists in many industries are paid handsomely to convince lawmakers to undermine science that protects our health. We all need to speak up and make sure that science isn't sidelined. Because when powerful interests keep science from the decision-making process, people get hurt. That was former San Francisco 49ers linebacker Chris Borland. Steve Fainer, you spent a lot of time going around with Chris Borland. Tell us you know, how he came to that decision. Well, it was kind of crazy, actually. Borland read our book, <laughs> and he claimed that he was like, he simply was reading it during the NFL season, and, uh, you know, he wouldn't, like, he had it in his locker, but he had to hide it, and, um, <laughs> and then at the end of the season, um, I didn't know him, but he, he called me, and uh, he said he was interested in talking to some of the um, uh, some of the neuroscientists who were who were in our book, and so I passed along some contact information, not really thinking. I asked him, I was like, "What?" He's like, oh, "I'm just doing some research." And then, two months later, he called uh, me and my brother, who's uh, also my colleague, and he and I worked on this book together. And um, uh, and he announced that he was told us he was retiring, that after one season he had been incredibly successful. He had been the leading tackler on the 49ers, and he was actually a, a candidate for Rookie of the Year, and he was set to make like $3 million, and he had just decided to walk away from, from the NFL, and basically, you know, he said he had compiled enough information, reading and talking to people, that he just didn't want to take the risk. The NFL has been doing uh, research on on this, so tell us how the, the NFL, Steve Fainru, has... Uh, the, their journey they've gone on, on the research looking into the CTE after Mike Webster kind of blew the case open and made it, you know, Will uh, Smith played, a, there's a feature film, Hollywood film that told that story. How has the NFL handled the research? I mean, it's been a kind of a 20-year saga at this point, you know, to sort of condense it. I, I think one of the things that's really striking to me is listening to these stories is just the same patterns o over and over. And they're trying to convince, in a lot of these cases, this is particularly true of smoking and football. And we, these are things we know intuitively can't be good for you, right? And so they're, you know, they're trying to make this case that, that somehow like, what is right in front of us might not actually be true. And that was really the case with the NFL. I mean, they, in the NFL's case, they, they initially they put together their own they called it the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, and they assigned a wait, wait, Mild Traumatic Mild Traumatic okay. Brain Injury Committee. Right. That's a yes, yeah. And it was composed of primarily NFL physicians, including the uh, team doctor for the New York Jets, who was actually a rheumatologist. So he was the head of the committee, you know. And he was also Paul Tagliabue, who was the NFL commissioner at the time. He was the he was Tagliabue's personal physician. So this Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, they put out 16 papers, which were published in the Neurosurgery Journal. And they basically said, in a nutshell, that uh, football players don't get brain damage, that they're essentially impervious, as if they're like superhuman. They, 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 they can't, and, and that concussions are actually very minor injuries, and that people can go back into games, that it's okay for high school players to play with concussions or to return after concussions, that these are, are very mild injuries. So that, that went on for, uh, for about a decade, and then they were ultimately the, what happened was it was an accumulation of evidence that more and more players were coming up with problems. After Webster, there were several more cases. Now the case number of cases are in the hundreds. But they just couldn't sort of, um, you know, it was sort of undeniable at a certain point. They had pressure from Congress, which compared it to the tobacco industry problem. So then they shifted into a completely different phase 
which we've been covering for the last few years, and that has been trying to sort of co-opt the federal government. They gave $30 million to the NIH, which was supposed to be an independent, they were handing it over to the independent experts and they were gonna let the experts decide. But then when push came to shove and the NIH handed over half the money to a neuroscientist at Boston University who had very clearly drawn a link between football and brain damage, they revoked the funding, pushed back, and tried to get the money diverted to doctors who were affiliated with the league. So that's sort of been their playbook over the last few years, and it continues right up to today. Stan Glanz, as you're listening to this, is this like deja vu all over again? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, just about a month ago, uh, Philip Morris uh, created a, quote, independent foundation for a smoke-free world to show how good, they, what, what great guys they are. And, and, uh, and you listen to the rhetoric that they are going to be independent and their, their charter says that they're, you know, the fact that they're getting uh, $80 million a year uh, from Philip Morris, don't, won't really give Philip Morris any influence. And, and you know, the, the person who runs it actually is an old friend of mine, a guy who used to be an anti-tobacco guy at the WHO who went over to the dark side. And, and he, uh, well, actually, his transition to the dark side is now complete because he went from tobacco to working for Pepsi to get Pepsi to make healthy beverages. Uh, <laughs> and then he went on back to work for the tobacco industry. But, you know, the reality is that if they did one thing, it's exactly the story Steve was talking about, if they did one thing that actually risked hurting the tobacco companies, that money would just be gone gone like that. And in fact, uh, back in the, in the uh, 70s or the 80s, uh, the tobacco companies gave a bunch of money to Kaiser, the health, uh, Kaiser Health Plan, because they have a big database of all, you know, lots and lots of patients. And they were saying, we'd like you to look at every possible thing that might cause heart disease. And, and hoping they would find that smoking wasn't important after they considered everything else imaginable, and they found smoking was important. And, <laughs> and, and, and the, the, the guy who did it, who then was just an assistant, he also had an assistant professor appointment at UC, you know, he published this, and the industry tried to talk him out of it, and he, he, he said, this is what we found, we're going to publish it. And so they then set up a whole PR campaign to trash the guy. So it's, it, it all sounds kind of vaguely familiar, you know? Um, the, the one thing about these guys, and it, it also if you look at the global warming issue, they, they're not very creative. <laughs> and, and they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I do think the public is beginning to figure that out. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about concussions, cigarettes, and climate, narratives of deceit. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. Got a smoke? We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about concussions, cigarettes, and climate with Adrian Alvord, Western States Director at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Steve Fanaru, co-author of League of Denial, the NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth, and Stan Glantz, professor at the UC San Francisco Medical School and author of The Tobacco Wars. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Adrian Elvord, tell us the playbook. What are the plays in the playbook that the Union of Concerned Scientists has identified? And this is not just oil and tobacco, it's other industries. Tell us the plays. Okay, so um, we created this playbook so that people could have a better sense of understanding of these strategies, these communication strategies. you got to find this on the web. It's so uh, good. That, uh, <laughs> that have been used for six decades or so. The tobacco industry was really the pioneer. And um, the strategies are called, in order for people to understand them, we sort of name them after football strategies. So we've got the fake, <laughs> which is basically taking fake scientific research and trying to pass it off as the real thing. We have the blitz, which to me is the most personally distasteful. It's when corporations try to not only besmirch the science, but they 
take the scientists and you know, run their names through the mud and try and attack their credibility and harass them in various ways, including suing them and other kinds of legal harassment, sending them nasty, crude emails, and basically not only making their lives miserable, but becoming an object lesson to other researchers who might want to follow the same path. Um, then there is the diversion, which is very widely followed. This is when corporations will take settled science and through a variety of communications tactics, will sow doubt about what is really settled science and make people feel like, oh, the science maybe isn't certain. Uh, then there's the screen, uh, which we've had some examples of, where uh, corporations will fund research at prestigious institutions. Uh, and those institutions give them more credibility, but the research is actually diverting attention from the harm that their products are causing. And then there's the fix, which is kind of the most open, crude exercise of raw political power to try and influence regulators and legislators to ignore the science and not find them liable and not regulate them. So those are the things that we identified. I think you could find subgroups. A lot of times these are used uh, in concert, um, I think that uh, the petroleum industry has used probably every one of these uh, to slow down progress on climate change. Um, but, the, but the main thing that I think is important, um, you know, these are kind of cute names and some of these stories are actually kind of funny. Um, but this is really, uh, this, this disinformation delays action that we need to stop harm. It's delay causing devastation, personal devastation, sometimes communities, public health, and in the case of climate change, the whole planet. So it's not just fake news. It really is something far more insidious than that. It's something that's causing harm, and I think we need another term besides fake news. Stan Glanz, there's a difference, though. We're talking about risks people are willing to take. People are willing to take the risk uh, of, of cancer to enjoy smoking, willing to take the risk of, of concussion, of, of brain damage to play football. Um, so if we're willing, if humans are willing to take very personal risks for things that are, they're fine enjoying, then, then climate change seems like that's, that's an easy one because the benefits are personal, but the costs, the externalities are, are socialized. So it sounds like what we're hearing here is that climate change is going to be tough to solve if we're doing personal harm on these other things. Well, no, I think, I think there are actually quite strong parallels because the basic strategy that you see across all three of these examples is, is a, the effort to just simply slow progress down because, you know, the tobacco companies know that people are quitting smoking, that sooner or later they're going to be forced out of business. But if they could just extend that a year or two or five or ten and just slow the rate of decline a little bit, that's like billions and billions of dollars that they made. And, you know, if you look at global warming, I can't believe that the Koch brothers don't believe global warming is real. They're smart guys. They're engineers. But if they could just and that the transition to renewable energy has to happen. But if they could just make it happen a little bit slower, then they can make a ton of money in the meantime. And I, I think that's what underlies all these strategies. It's just this, rather than speeding public understanding of, of the truths of what we're talking about, which would then build political support for the kind of policy changes that would solve the problems. They just want to slow everything down as much as they can. Adrian Alvord? I think what you're really talking about is that I think the difference between playing football and smoking a cigarette and solving global warming is that uh, those two activities are more or less volitional, leaving aside, of course, that tobacco is addictive. That's a bit of a wrinkle. Yeah. But, uh, but and secondhand smoke, too. Yeah, that's true. But more or less, these are individual choices that people make to, to, to engage in these activities activities, whereas, you know, it's hard to walk away from the entire economy. And I think that, you know, we need to do a better job of helping people to identify what is good information and what is junk information. I think that's the crux of this issue. I'm Greg Dalton, and this program of the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, we're talking about football, tobacco, and oil. My guests are Adrian Elvord from the Union of Concerned Scientists, Steve Fainero, a reporter for ESPN, and Stan Glantz, a professor, medical professor at the University of California at San Francisco. We're going to go to our lightning round. I'm going to mention a uh, noun to our speakers and ask them to respond with their first thought that comes to their mind, unfiltered uh, <laughs> and perhaps irresponsible. Uh, so... <laughs> Steve Fainaru, uh, what comes to mind when I say Junior Seau, former linebacker for the San Diego Chargers? 
tragedy. I mean, Junior Seau's death was just an unbelievable tragedy. I mean, he was a, you know, he was a wonderful person. He was a good citizen. He was an incredible athlete, and uh, his brain was destroyed by football, and he ended up killing himself. Adrian Elvord, what's the one word that comes to mind when I mention President Trump's science advisor? One word? Ignore. He hasn't he has an appointed one. So yeah. uh, Stan Glanz, what's the one word that comes to mind when I say Altria? Uh, slime bucket. <laughs> um, Adrian Elvord, uh, what's the most effective climate denier that you know of? A skilled prince of darkness. <laughs> Mark Morano. Anybody see Merchants of Doubt? This is a guy uh, who started his career. He, he majored in communications, started his career working for Rush Limbaugh. Then he went to work for a right-wing news outfit that was responsible for publishing and uh, promulgating the story of the Swift Vote Veterans for Peace uh, and trying to undermine John Kerry's war record. Uh, and then he went to be, I think, the communications director for James Inhofe. Um, and then he opened his own climate website and started passing himself off as a climate expert. And in Merchants of Doubt, he's absolutely gleeful about not really being a scientist, but I play one on TV. Um, and the problem with this guy is that, you know, he'll say anything. And he, if you look at his, his career, it's very clear he's, he's a right-wing PR flack, but he marketed himself as a climate expert. And so he went on TV and was uh, equally weighted with, you know, the, the, the fairness doctrine, the, you know, you've got to have two sides to everything. Uh, you have a climate scientist on one side, a real expert, and you have this guy who's there basically to spout propaganda. So um, he's been, he and his ilk have been very effective, very unfortunately. Effective. Steve Feiner, one word that comes to mind when I say NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Equivocator. Stan Glanz, the New England Patriots. Uh, I don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adrian Elvord, clean coal. <laughs> I think that's my answer. <laughs> uh, okay, true or false, uh, Stan Glantz, sugar is what keeps every human being alive and with the energy to face our daily problems. True or false? <laughs> uh, uh, the way as you framed it, false. Adrian Elvord, uh, carbon dioxide is food for plants. True, but. Steve Feiner wrote, there is no such thing, true or false, there's no such thing as the safe amount of playing tackle football. True. Adrian Elvord, true or false, you vividly recall smoking your first cigarette. Oh, that's like truth or dare. <laughs> yes, I do. True or false, you enjoyed it. No. Stan Glantz, true or false, corporations have deeply infiltrated American universities and are influencing research output. Um, they're getting there. Adrian Alvord, oil industry lobbyists are charming and personal. I know from personal experience this is true. Steve Feineru, uh, true or false, you still love football and would let your son play when he was a teenager if he had asked. True. Last question, uh, Steve Feineru, the NFL has peaked and will shrink significantly in your lifetime. I don't know if I would say significantly. It will shrink for sure. That ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round of applause for getting through that. We're talking about football, oil, and tobacco at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. We have Steve Feineru, Stan Glantz, and Adrian Elvord. Steve Feineru, I want to pick up on that. Uh, when you were writing your book, League of Denial, which in many ways really broke open the concussion crisis in the NFL, you had a, you had a teenage son. Uh, did he want to play football? He, he ma was making noises about wanting to play football. He... he, he Teenage and testing his dad. It was yeah. sort of, yeah, we were, he was a freshman when, um, when Mark and I were researching the book. Your brother, and, Mark Fainer-Ruwada. Yeah, and I, you know, I played uh, high school football, and, um, you know, it was really a, a, a formative experience for me. I, I, I loved it. I love football. I continue to watch a, a lot of it. And um, I, I, the, the, where I finally came down was, I, I still feel like, in terms of what we know about the science, that the actual risk of playing football, like how many people actually get brain damage from playing football and how much of a risk it is, is not nearly established. Uh, we know that it's especially, we know that it's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous at the college and the professional level. It's not nearly as established in high school. 
And, uh, you know, I, I guess I just didn't want to be a parent who was sort of limiting experiences based on um, some unknown risk. And that would certainly not be the truth of, like, smoking, for example. Like, I wouldn't be like, okay, oh, yeah, go ahead and smoke. And now your son goes to Michigan. So talk about uh, football at Michigan and, and concussion research at Michigan. Yeah, this is well-timed, this <laughs> thing, because I just got back from Ann Arbor where I attended the, the Michigan-Ohio State game. And there were 112,000 people in attendance. And um, it was really, it was just such an exciting spectacle. I mean, I was really happy to be there in the student section with my son. And yet, you know, I know too much at this point. And, you know, one of the really things, that's, things that is, is interesting about Michigan is there's a lot of really interesting concussion research that's going on at the university. And yet, when you're in the big house, as the stadium is known, they play just videos constantly of these huge hits of people running into each other, hits that are certainly injurious, and yet it's there for your entertainment. And so there's this incredible disconnect between the university where, where significant concussion research is taking place and the experience um, in this massive stadium and uh, I think it, you know, it kind of embodies where the country is at, I think, now where I'm at. You know, I, it's hard to reconcile the two, and yet you know, we, we do it every weekend, every Saturday and Sunday, really, or every Monday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. <laughs> Adrian Alford, uh, you think there's some anti-elitism. There's a, there's a cultural piece to this about yeah. not trusting experts and kind of uh, the pop we're in this very populist moment politically. Tell us about your thoughts about that. Well, you know, I, in, in American history, we have a long tradition of sort of anti-intellectualism. And I think that the way this relates to what's happening today is that it, there's not only an anti-intellectualism, uh, but there's a sense of rejection of experts. And this whole disinformation process that we've been talking about, I think certainly plays into the cynicism that people have about fake news because they get a lot of information that l turns out to be false. And, you know, there are, there are dueling experts on television all the time. And who do you believe? And so it, be it inevitably becomes politicized. The information that you tend to believe tends to be the information that follows more your personal prejudices, your personal beliefs, and those of people like you. So I think that that's been a, a really destructive thing for the discourse of this country. And, and now we have, frankly, a president who can spout things on a regular basis that are patently false. And apparently, at least among his supporters, there's no real downside for that. That's a very dangerous place to be. Stan Glanzik, we mentioned earlier that the tobacco companies innovated some of these things. You actually think that, that it was earlier than tobacco. So tell us uh, who it really was, and perhaps it was sugar that started this. Well, yeah, we, I, I've sort of got, gotten involved in the sugar issue, too, because it's all the same stuff. And, and it turns out and the tobacco companies really got their whole disinformation campaign going in 1953. Uh, what had happened before that was uh, uh, the research on cancer was just coming together. There was an article in the Reader's Digest called Cancer by the Carton, and Reader's Digest at that point was the most widely read publication in the world, and this totally panicked the tobacco companies, and, and with good reason, because it led to this huge outpouring of public concern. There were calls for not only national legislation, but states were talking about putting warning labels on cigarettes and banning advertising. So they got together uh, at a very famous meeting at the Plaza Hotel, which is actually in Merchants of Doubt, too. And, 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 and they came up with this idea of, of doubt is our product. And, and the way they did that, or one of the key things they did, was they founded a so-called independent research organization. And, and one of the guys who applied for a job there had been working for the sugar industry. And, and we have his letter applying for the job where he said, look at all of the good sort of disinformation I've been spreading on sugar in the 1940s, and why don't you hire me? And they did. He was like the number two guy at, 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 for the tobacco companies. And in both of these cases, in fact, in all of these cases, whether you're talking about, I don't know about the NFL, but for, for, for when you're talking about global warming and the petrochemical industry uh, or, or tobacco or sugar, one thing that really impresses me as we get into looking at these internal documents is these guys are really smart. 
They know the science. They accept the science internally. They use it to make business decisions. But the public positions they take are completely 180 degrees away from what they're doing. I mean, with, with Exxon, I mean, at the same time they were funding all this climate denialism, they were saying, oh, well, we can do more drilling in the Arctic because the ice sheets are going to melt. And, and, and the, the level of sophistication about their understanding of science and the level of sophistication on how to manipulate scientists is, is really impressive. And I think one thing that, that, that they've done a really good job of taking advantage of is the sort of innocence and naivete of a lot of scientists who just can't believe people would be as evil as some of these guys are. And, and, and the result, when, when you have these dueling voices, um, and, the, and the media's propensity to always want to present two sides, even if there's not two sides, that really feeds into the public confusion and the public cynicism. And so th there needs to be a little more judgment there where, when they say, you know, the science on this really is settled and we're not going to put Mark Morano on the television just because we can't find a legitimate scientist to put on, which is what ends up happening. Science is real from anatomy to geology. You're listening to a conversation about concussions, cigarettes, and climate, narratives of deceit. This is Climate One. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Science is real. Science is real. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about concussions, cigarettes, and climate with Adrian Alvord, Western States Director at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Steve Fanaru, co-author of League of Denial, The NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth, and Stan Glantz, professor at the UC San Francisco Medical School and author of The Tobacco Wars. Here's Greg. Adrian Alvord, litigation was a turning point for the tobacco story. There's some litigation in New York and other places going after kind of what the oil companies knew and when. Tell us about that, because that's kind of using, potentially using some of the same tactics that led to the big $200 billion tobacco settlement. Right. Well, the litigation that's ongoing in New York is, to me, the most interesting because it really has to do with shareholder fraud. These are companies that are supposed to be disclosing to their shareholders business risks that they could encounter. And uh, for a long time, most of the companies, uh, the, the fossil fuel companies, uh, downplayed or just didn't mention the risks that climate change were posing to their, to their products. And the risk, of course, is that if it's found that fossil fuels are basically uh, putting the planet at risk, uh, there's a risk that those fossil fuels could be uh, regulated or even uh, phased out as a result. And so now they're starting to be a little bit more savvy. They're starting to talk a little bit about, more about this, but they have really uh, denied this for years. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, and I think one of the most important things that could happen for this is if there is discovery, as there, is, uh, as there was with the tobacco industry. And that's that, a legal uh, process for bringing forth documents. Right. It, it'll be very interesting if, if we can figure out what all uh, they've been thinking all these years because the tobacco discovery process uh, provided a treasure trove of information, not only about what was going on uh, in the tobacco industry and the fraud that was going on there, but also with sugar and football, apparently. And, and global, other, warming, and global warming. I mean, the big difference in what happened with tobacco because normally in these major cases where there's a lot of litigation, the plaintiffs get all this dirt from inside the defendant's companies. And then when the cases settle, all of that is just destroyed. And the thing that happened in the tobacco litigation that was very unusual is the attorney general of Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey III, who, who brought one of the first big cases, said the most important thing to come out of this litigation is going to be the truth. And I'm not going to settle this case mm -hmm. unless the, the documents that we got, the 25 million or so pages they got, were made public. And that was the second to last thing. It was settled the day the case went to the jury. But he just said, I'm not settling this case if those things aren't produced. And so I've been saying, for example, to people who know the attorney general in New York who's bringing this big case, you know, are you going to make a commitment not to settle that case without 
insisting that the million, he's already got a couple million pages, I've heard. You know, I think it's very important for UCS and the other public interest groups to be pressuring him to make, which he has not yet done, to make a commitment that all of that stuff will be made public. We would love to have it at UCSF. We'll put it on the internet and <laughs> let people get it for free. And Adrian Elvord, there still is no uh, whistleblower the way Jeffrey Wigand was uh, you know, famously played uh, by Russell Crowe in the insider Hollywood film with Al Pacino. Uh, there's still no whistleblower or smoking gun that, you know, aha, that sort of doubt is our product moment for the, for the oil companies. Or maybe there is, and we just don't know about it. Well, I think that Axon is, is really an example of a, kind of a tragedy because they were doing some of the best climate science research uh, going in the 1970s and uh, early 1980s. Uh, and they really wanted to do this. Uh, they had business reasons for wanting to do it. They wanted to know, you know how it would impact their businesses, their drilling, and so on. Uh, but they also felt that if they were credible voices on climate science, that they would be able to influence the process for good. Um, but then around 1988, when James Hansen was telling the world that not only was climate change happening and being caused by fossil fuels, but it was potentially very dangerous, um, and uh, world leaders started to really think seriously about how are we going to control this, they defunded their legitimate scientific research and started funding disinformation in a major way. And it was this about face, you know, where they could have been a force for good, and they really chose to double down. And the thing is that date 1988 is important because uh, in the course of the Industrial Revolution, you know, 200, 250 years, um, we've emitted a lot of carbon dioxide, but half of it has been emitted into the atmosphere since 1988. Hmm. Think of what could have happened if we'd started to change back in the 1980s. A lot more. We're talking about cigarettes, oil, and the NFL at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Adrian Elvord from the Union of Concerned Scientists, Steve Fainaru from ESPN, and Stan Glantz from the San Francisco Medical School, University of California, San Francisco Medical School. Steve Fainer, I want to ask you about, there's a character in your book, uh, Kevin Guskowitz, who was one of the original dissenters, and then he flips and starts to uh, sing the tune of the NFL. And one thing he says that there's still no cause and effect relationship. We still don't know exactly how a, a hit in a, in a football a game causes CTE, which the same can be perhaps said of, of, of smoking. But tell us about Kevin Guskowitz. Well, Guskowitz is a, um, he's a, uh, well, he's now a, a, a dean at University of North Carolina. Uh, he was, a, he went there as a concussion researcher. And he was, he was a former assistant trainer at the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was a huge football fan. And um, he was one of about a half dozen scientists who began to make connections between football and different forms of, of mental illness. In Guskowitz's case, he had established pretty convincingly that the, the greater number of concussions that you incur on the football field, the, um, the greater the risk you have of, of depression later in life. And so that gained him a lot of notoriety and ultimately a uh, MacArthur Foundation grant and, um, and kind of catapulted his career. And he, the, NFL had a pro, the NFL had attacked his research, this mild traumatic brain injury committee had attacked his research. And, um, you know, he had basically, they had approached him and tried to co-opt him. And then finally, when the NFL disbanded that committee and reconfigured it, they invited him on to uh, basically to participate in the research. And he looked at it as, a, as an opportunity, I think, to really change the sport. And they put him on the rules committee. And one of the first things he did was change the kickoff rule in football. And so it was moved up. And so now the kickoff in football is the most dangerous play in football. It's basically a 22-car pileup. And um, at high speed, high dis more distance, yeah, more speed. Yeah. Exactly. And so Guskowitz moved it up so there would be um, more touchbacks and there'd be fewer, fewer runbacks and fewer collisions. So that was the first thing he did. But then suddenly he was, he was making statements that were, seemed contrary even to his own research. And people began to call him on it and say, well, you know, wait a minute, this is, you're now saying that there's really, that the, the science is being overstated and that there's hysteria and that we still really don't know the connection, the cause of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And so now it's almost like he's flipped and, it, 
I, I think Mark and I have looked at him as the most fascinating case because we don't really understand it. And it, it has to do with the psychology of this. And I was thinking about it actually when Stan was talking about sort of we don't really understand that these people are really evil, you know? And, um, and, I, and I'm not sure, at least in the case of the NFL, that I totally agree with it. I feel like there's, there's a psychology that goes along with it, that uh, particularly in the NFL, that, that people look at that they're the caretakers, the custodians of this, this huge part of our culture, which is football. And that we don't want people getting ahead of it and we want to protect it. And let's not ignore all the great things that football does for us. And, you know, so soon they're like combating childhood obesity and, um, you know, and, and the, the camaraderie and, and discipline that you develop from playing football and they turn it into something completely different than, than what it actually is. And I feel like somewhere in there is Guskowitz's trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, honestly, I would love to sit on a stage with him and, and try, to, uh, try to figure it out because it's just a fascinating thing. If you're just joining us, we're talking about football, tobacco, and oil at Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Lila Holzman. I'm the energy program manager at As You Sow, but I'm here as an indiv- individual um, this question is mostly for Adrian. On the curious to get your thoughts on the importance of going back and proving liability in instances of doubt mongering, given that a lot of those companies have since changed their tune and are currently more open and arguably doing more to address the issues now than they obviously were then. And how important is it to what are what are the trade offs of going back and still focusing on what happened back then? Well, I think that. It's clear that fossil fuel companies, there's a lot of documentation that they've misled the public about the danger of their products to the atmosphere. And as with tobacco, I think it's important that companies are held accountable because who's going to be paying for it when we're, you know, as we're seeing now with increased storms and wildfires and hurricanes and all the rest of it, uh, sea level rise, of course, um, who's going to be paying for that? We are the public is gonna be paying for that. And I think that it's important, and we said as an organization, the Union of Concerned Scientists has recommended that we start holding fossil fuel companies accountable for the damage that they have caused. Now, um, there are issues of you know, the First Amendment and freedom of speech. There are complicated legal issues in terms of liability that we're gonna be working out for several years. But the evidence of deception is there. And I think that it's important that we establish this principle that when you basically defraud the public, that you need to be held accountable. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. My name is Ryan Preska. And my question is about, um, we've, we've looked at tobacco, oil, football. Is there also a precedent for this same playbook and these same deceitful strategies in marijuana legalization or uh, illegalization with regard to pharmaceutical companies. Uh, This question is for all three of the guest speakers. I would love to hear your thoughts on this issue. Stan Glantz, briefly, you're working on marijuana. Yeah, yes. I think what what, what we're witnessing now is the emergence of the new tobacco industry. Same, same. I can do a whole three hours. Okay. That, I, uh, let's go to our next question to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, Gary Malazian. Uh, you're dealing with facts and figures. What you're not, the reason you're not making headway at the speed that you would like to is because they have a better marketing campaign than you have. If you, if you pick up your marketing, I think you'll make a lot more progress. And uh, sex and money make things happen in America. And what you're talking about is not sexy and not making a lot of money for big companies. So if you could market it a little differently than you're marketing it, I think you'll make a lot more progress. Adrian Alvord, you know, it's true that scientists leave with lots of facts and narratives change people's minds. We've done whole programs here at Climate One on facts don't change people's minds. Uh, scientific community hasn't done a great job communicating this. Fair point? I think that is a fair point. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the dilemmas we face as a science-based organization. You want to honor the nuances of science. It's complicated stuff that we're talking about. And uh, we're always trying to balance creating a forceful message, but being really true to the science. And um, it's a very, very difficult road to hoe. 
scientists don't want to be sexy necessarily, <laughs> and most of them don't have very much money. So um, it's kind of foreign to the culture. Uh, I, but we are very aware of the problem that communicating the hazards of climate change has been difficult. I think we're getting better. Um, and, and frankly, I think that people's personal experience of what's happening uh, with the weather is starting to make them think, wow, there may be something to this. Um, but if you have suggestions and you're volunteering to help us, come see me after the show. Let's go to our last question in Climate One. Welcome. Hi, Ellie Marks, California Brain Tumor Association. Thank you all for the work you're doing. Um, this could have been called football, tobacco, oil, and telecom. My colleagues and I have been fighting them for, I'm almost into this for about a decade now. Wireless radiation is causing cancer. We have inconclusive evidence. You mentioned something like that before. Um, what do we do? We are up against a trillion dollar industry. At what point do we use the RICO Act? We, our hands are tied and we don't know what to do and I'd like some advice. Well, this, this is an area I've actually been following and see, I have a cell phone but it's turned off and I don't put it next to my head. And I think that the cell phone companies, there's actually a literature out there on the cell phone companies, and they're playing all the same games. If you look at who funds research on cell phones, you can predict whether it's going to say there's a problem or not. And I think it's just the same. You need to, like, look at their website, because it's the same old playbook. And, and you know, we, these, these fights, whether you're talking about tobacco or climate and environmental things or dealing with football, it's, it's a matter of breaking through and just, you know, the politicians follow the public. They don't lead. And, and, and it's just a tough fight. Greg Dalton has been talking about concussions, cigarettes, and climate with Adrian Alvord. Western States Director at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Steve Fenneru, co-author of League of Denial, The NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. And Stan Glantz, professor at the UC San Francisco Medical School and author of The Tobacco Wars. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.